Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today's episode is a follow-up to the last show we did with StrongDM. StrongDM is a security tool that gives you seamless access to the infrastructure you manage. And in that last episode, StrongDM pitched the idea of zero-standing privilege. Zero-standing privilege goes beyond just-in-time credentials to a model where no credentials pre-exist but are created in real time and paired with the appropriate permissions built from policy also created in real time. I I think I got that right. Uh, That is a maximum security point of view and like a lot of security paradigms. It's kind of an idealistic one because practically speaking, can zero standing privilege actually be implemented in the average organization? Our guest today is StrongDM's Sebastian Mankowski. Sebastian has a really good handle on the organizational challenges of implementing zero standing privilege and how to work within them while still getting the security posture result we are looking for. Sebastian, welcome to the show. I set you up with a tall order here, man, to take an (laughs) arguably inconvenient security posture and implement it in an organization. And and none of us seem to like uh, inconvenience. We really don't. Um, So we're going to talk about this, uh, how to implement zero standing privilege. But we should refresh everyone's memory first on what zero standing privilege is, because maybe folks have heard of just in time privileges. But you guys are making the distinction at StrongDM between just in time privileges and zero standing privileges. So could you tell us what uh, the difference is between those two? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and thanks for having me, Ethan and Ned. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to let me just hear myself talk. Uh, always always good to have a little extra time for that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that at its core, where I always start in terms of thinking about the differences is just in time often is part of your road towards achieving zero standing privileges. So rather than being them being things that live at odds to each other, zero standing privileges is a framework or, or an endpoint that just in time privileges can help you achieve. The biggest differentiator being that zero standing privileges is this world where there is no concept of standing privilege. There's no notion of a world where users within your infrastructure framework constantly have access to anything. Anytime they need access to a thing, whether it's a service, whether it's a server or a database, they request access to it. And that allows for essentially a type of continuous authentication that occurs at the identity and user level rather than just at the connection level. So you can check things like what is the posture of the device? where What are the characteristics of the identity that is attempting to request access or privileges to a particular resource? You can evaluate that all in real time without ever having to rely on a set of permanent or standing privileges. Okay, so if I'm I'm understanding correctly, let, let me read that back to you. In a just-in-time situation, the, the access, they always have the privilege to access the resource. It's just that you're opening up the gate for a certain amount of time for them to leverage that privilege. But the privilege is always there. Whereas in zero standing privilege, the privilege isn't there. It's defined in a policy somewhere and then applied as needed when access is requested to that object. Is that did I did I get it right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a great way to to reframe it. And the notion of there being policy that governs how a user's need for access gets instantiated at any given point in time, I think is the best way to think about it. It's like you have this rather than explicitly having discrete sets of privileges that you've allocated towards individuals, you're instead saying Ned is a member of the SRE team. And when pager duty says that he is on schedule and there is an incident, 
these are the sets of production resources that he should be able to access as long as he conducts an MFA event. And then he can go in and resolve any problem for the duration of the incident. So you're essentially describing a problem. You're describing the need of what somebody's doing and then having what is explicitly needed to accomplish that goal to solve for that problem flow from that policy, from that description of the problem. You just put something together for me that I was missing uh, before. It wasn't quite set in my head. That is, Ned could have different privileges at different times, depending on the role he's playing at any given time. And, and on-call is a great example. What you might need on on-call to solve a problem is different than what you might need for your daily admin duties or what you might need when you're subbing for someone who's on vacation, let's say. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I, I think that's a, in a, maybe a subtle distinction, but to me, a, a very valuable one. I think historically, notions of PAM and zero trust uh, very much rely on this concept of the access itself. You know, Ethan can access this database as being your, your, your discrete building block and everything else is just a collection of those pieces of access and you're managing those pieces. When in reality, those are kind of like an artifact that we've just created uh, out of necessity. It was something that was needed given the systems that we had in at the time in order to actually implement what is the true nature of the problem, which is Ethan, at any given point in time in the day, needs to do his job. In order to do his job successfully, he needs to access these tools and resources. What are those? How do we understand them? And then how do we just make sure it's still Ethan when he is needing to do those jobs? And then just let everything connect the dots between them rather than having to try and manipulate and worry about the discrete components themselves. Those are kind of just uh, an unnecessary artifact at this point. Okay, we're using the term zero standing privilege. And of course, zero and zero trust, those those ring certain bells in the minds of security professionals these days. So how does zero standing privilege fit into a zero trust scheme, Sebastian? So this is something where we're, we're entering in a, a world of philosophy and terminology that I think you, you could have... Met, five people in a room at a bar and have seven different opinions. But from my perspective, I see zero standing privilege as the, essentially the gold standard of one, what one might accomplish with a zero trust mindset. Uh, again, in terms of specific definitions, uh, I, I think it's, it's one in which there will be a lot of variance uh, in terms of how people think about it. Uh, I actually I saw a report the other day uh, that was done by the UK where they were doing valuation of all their, their companies and what they thought of zero trust is and how important it is to them. Uh, and there were some just great stats that popped out to me. One was that 91% of all of their companies said that zero trust was important and that they had some type of plan to adopt it. And then in a the follow-up question, when it's like, well, what is zero trust to you? About 49% said that it was essentially a, a security framework or model, which is vague, but accurate. And everything else was basically an incorrect understanding of what zero trust is. Is it a VPN replacement tool? Uh, is it a regulatory requirement? It's a perimeter security product. And it's like, well, great. And I understand that this is something that there's, there's a lot of a kind of nebulous understanding around. But in my mind, where you should focus on zero standing privilege is just this notion of take away the idea of just giving people more than what they need just to make sure you're not getting in their way of them doing their job and instead only give them what they need but make sure you have the tools and systems in place 
that it's done seamlessly without interrupting and sometimes maybe even making their lives easier and allowing them to do their jobs more easily. Right. It speaks to the dynamic nature of our environments now, as opposed to a more static environment in the past where you had your well-defined data center, you had devices that didn't pop in and out all the time. You know, you had computer accounts uh, and that would be, you know, a physical server that you'd have for the next 15 years. And yeah, you'd set up the privileges once and that was it. And now you've got, you know, containers and other ephemeral things that pop in and out. And so we got to make our security approach more dynamic mm -hmm. as well. Um, it sounds okay. really good. I like the idea. Uh, but I think you and I both know that um, security can be very difficult to, to implement, um, both for reasons that are technical in nature, and usually those are not really the hard ones, and also human in nature. And those are usually the really, really difficult ones. Um, so maybe we'll start with the technical ones. Um, what are some of the technical hurdles, we'll call them, that you need to overcome if you want to implement zero trust and zero standing privilege? Absolutely. And, and I think where you were, great place to start is what you were talking about a little earlier with this notion of ephemeral infrastructure and the need to incorporate that type of infrastructure, which is becoming a growing percentage of people's workloads overall. And combining that and being able to bridge the gap of that type of cloud-based ephemeral infrastructure with your more traditional legacy workloads, things like mainframes or just on-prem servers and services that are running. That's always going to be a challenge, particularly now as more and more companies are trying to transition to the cloud. So being able to have a system that can accommodate all of these different types of locations, all these different types of basically you know, computing environments that companies rely on these days to actually run their businesses uh, can be very, very challenging. And then you're also trying to incorporate that into the existing tools and workflows that every company has, whether that's additional vendors, SaaS vendors that provide different services like threat detection on endpoints, or you have your HR systems that are actually doing managing onboarding and offboarding of individuals, you have your identity management. You know, every company has a slew of different pieces of technology that occupy different workflows. And being able to have something that bridges the entire life cycle of users and infrastructure within the DevOps side of an organization is very challenging. There's very few times when you can actually turn to a single tool to be that single source of truth. Hmm. Okay. So easy win in terms of implementation is go with the new. You're, you're going to, hey, uh, you, you already have this dynamic environment or, or you're building it and you need a tool that can help you manage the security. Hey, we have a tool that does that. Awesome. You can just add it to the workflow as you go. What about your legacy environment or legacy is kind of a negative word, your heritage environment. <laughs> I like heritage. I'm, I'm going to steal that. that. That's good. Like uh, heirloom. How about heirloom? Heirloom, heirloom workloads. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and that, that again is, so that challenge presented by having legacy workloads uh, is one that often not only makes it difficult to adopt new tools to solve for the problems you have, but it also makes it challenging to continue your modernization of your infrastructure and your approaches to infrastructure. So this is something that companies face all the time. And it's a matter of budget. It's expensive, as well as technical expertise. 
And then it also starts leading into the human side of things, where as soon as you start changing the types of infrastructure that people have to use or the ways in which they use it, you start moving their cheese. You're starting to disrupt their workflows, which not only makes people pretty upset, but it also just reduces their operational efficiency, which no company wants to do. Right. So like, like what do we call it? Heritage. Sorry, heritage workloads are going to have some challenges there. Um, uh, what about uh, layering in my existing tooling, which is near and dear to the hearts of the folks that are listening to this? We got lots and lots of tools that need privileged access. How do they fit into all of this? I mean, you definitely need a solution which is open enough either with built-in first-class integrations or with support through APIs and open architecture that allows people to interlace their existing tooling with that infrastructure or with that uh, solution. So that is a really important approach. And if you can't integrate the existing tooling, if you're forcing people to either drop or adopt new tooling while trying to implement a zero-sending privilege framework, then you're essentially doing yourself to fail. One of the challenges that we see a lot uh, ends up being the, the kind of combination uh, between the technical and the human. At its heart, security is a fundamentally human endeavor. Uh, the technical is just an implementation detail. So how do you bridge the two? How do you make it easier for people to not change the way they have to actually do things while also be able to do things differently? Uh, and the big challenge there is that Zero-sending privileges and, and access, this isn't like antivirus where you know, you're just dropping program on somebody's desktop and yeah, maybe it uses up a few extra CPU cycles, slows them down or blocks some files they download, but more or less it's something that disappears in the background. Instead, you, know, you are talking about something that you're injecting right in between all of their workloads. Like, Are they going to have to update all of their internal development APIs to then sign every request when it is hitting a database and using a new form of authentication. So that's something they're going to have to write and replace in all their scripts. That's the kind of stuff that you don't want to do because you're just reinforcing the, the human blockage part of the problem. Well, there's, there's two sides to that because um, there, on the one hand, there's internal code that we got to support, right? That's that's a problem for the organization. They got to sort out how they're going to deal with that because it's it's their own code. But what about you know well-known tools that might be in production uh, that have a well-defined, well-known API that's that's open? Does StrongDM integrate with a lot of those tools, or, or is that mostly up to the customer to do that integration? Absolutely, uh, we are definitely of the view that doing as much work for the customer and automating away as much of their day-to-day -day as possible is one of the number one benefits that we want to bring to the table. So making sure that we integrate directly with the most common identity providers, offer provisioning so that people don't have to worry about the life cycle of a user, making sure we can connect to the most common secrets vaults, and then having a flexible enough structure that we can very easily plug and play. So everything we built essentially is modular. And anytime there is a, you know, nail the top five most popular secrets faults, and every time somebody wants number six, seven, or eight, uh, then it's something that we're, we're happy to add for them. Or if they don't want to wait for us, you know, in a one or two week turnaround, API is open and they can build that integration themselves. But we definitely have a emphasis on building those first class integrations ourselves, because at the end of the day, don't want our customers doing extra work. We want them to focus on doing their jobs rather than trying to create a new job for themselves that doesn't actually contribute 
what moves their business. Okay, so we've been talking about the technical challenges of trying to deal with uh, with zero trust, uh, zero standing privilege. Let's move to the human side of things, Sebastian. Because here, I, I, the technical problems we're we're all nerds on this uh, call. We know how to we know how to deal with these. We kind of been through a bunch of this kind of work. There's work. It's going to be a thing, and we'll get it done. The human side of things not not so easy to cope with. Um, security initiatives they're going to often fail because of a preference for convenience. That's been the, the the sticking point in a lot of either consulting engagements or organizations I've worked for full time where it's like, yeah, that's great. It would make us more secure. Definitely. No one's going through that process or whatever it is that's going to make us more secure. It ain't happening. We're not going to do it. So we're going to compromise. <laughs> um, so walk us through how an organization is going to get their heads around this. Zero trust, uh, you know, just backing out to, to the level of zero trust is hard. How do we, you know, the zero uh, standing privilege is to me even harder in the way that you've described it because it feels like it's going to be an inconvenient or, or, or difficult thing. It definitely can be. And I think that given the most common products you see on the market today, given the approach, historical approach of standard PAM products, if you try and achieve zero standing privileges using those types of legacy technologies that were built in a world where Windows accounts were the number one most important thing to secure, and they were, you know, you were talking about account checkout and credential rotation. How do we protect these passwords and how do we protect these credentials and make sure that they're not being compromised? That type of technology ends up being very, very difficult to use to implement zero standing permissions, and the pains will be surfaced immediately both from the technical as well as organizational. So it really requires a kind of a, a, re, a rethinking of what is the what is the goal? What are you trying to accomplish here? And I think if you have the appropriate technology, if you have the appropriate type of access solution, it can actually be easier. But let me start with some of the challenges that we see a lot of companies have. First of all, zero trust in general, but very specifically, or most definitely zero standing permissions. It's a type of implementation that has to be centralized. It's a type of effort that has to have buy-in from the top down. Well, wait, so, so back up a second. You said centralized. First of all, what do you mean by centralized? Do you mean organizationally, like everyone's got to be, uh, you know, thinking about this from some policy that's been created by the SecOps team or something, or centralizes in functionally, you got to go through a central source of, well, truth, if you will. Yeah, that's a great, great question. So definitely more on the functional side. I think that you want to leave room for the policy to be decentralized. Having kind of you know one policy czar have craft the policies for everyone is going to be a non-starter. Nobody has that type of organizational visibility, particularly when you get a certain size. But from a functional level, again, going back to the notion of not moving a user's cheese. You know, we were talking earlier about technical challenges. A lot of that is more on the administrative deployment and user perspective. From an organizational perspective, there still is that notion as well, where you have maybe one team, they they know how they think of access and how they're what their teams need access to. And then team B also has their own notion. How they express it might be different though. So the functional unification has to be a Single single pane of glass that allows them both to express their policies in slightly different ways while achieving the same goal. So providing that single window 
that bridges all of their technology, that bridges all their workflows, and allows them to express different policies in slightly different ways, while at the end of the day achieving the same goal of just access for their team. Uh, that is like the kind of traditional goal, uh, and it kind of reminds me of, of a customer we had, which probably had my, my my favorite extreme example of the challenge of this type of centralization. And when they first started talking to us, they we it became clear pretty early on that not only were were we were they looking to us to help kind of replace an existing PAM solution, but they had nine different PAM solutions at that company. <laughs> run by nine different teams, each with their own budgets, each with their own organizations. And so you are put in a position where you're you're if you're gonna try and convince each one of those teams separately that a new that ripping out what they're doing today and just adopting something completely new is the way to go, you're gonna fail. There's no way that you're gonna be able to have a hundred percent hit rate and you do want to have or you do need to have that centralized tool in order to really implement a zero standing permissions framework. So instead, what you want to make sure you can do is, like I said earlier, integrate with what they have that is more difficult to do. So maybe you're not telling them to rip out their entire PAM solutions. Maybe instead you say, what is the most difficult part of your entire deployment framework? Most people are going to lean towards their secrets, where their credentials being stored, how are they being handled and what faults are those living in? Great. Leave those alone. Leave those in place. Leave a legacy PAM provider. Just hold on to the vaulting portion of it. And then let's rip out the most difficult, most painful part. So if you're running like a privileged session manager in combination with those secrets and that aspect is expensive, nobody in your organization likes doing it. So it would actually be a benefit. Everyone on that team is going to enjoy kind of just knocking out this old privileged session manager that they don't want to have to keep up and running anymore. And great. Well, lucky for you, we StrongDam integrates with all of these secrets vaulting tools. You have all nine of them. We're already up front there. Don't worry about it. And you can just drop that privileged session part, plug your vaulting right into StrongDM, and then we'll handle that from day one. So over time, you can create a bridge for them to move away from the old way they did things through a centralized solution and not make it super painful up front while also still preserving the end user experience. That feels like a technical answer, but it is actually also a <laughs> people answer because you're not, again, you said you didn't move their cheese. You're not taking away from them what they had, but you're providing that bridge, a transition mechanism to get you from where you're at to where you more ideally would like to be. Yeah, absolutely. and. There's also, again, this notion, which I think is really important for that we focus on a lot that's really important to us. And it's the idea of the end user pain and not only trying to avoid friction, but give them some more cheese. And you're not, you might move their cheese a little bit, but let's give them more cheese or, or tastier cheese or new cheese. I don't know. Maybe they like blue cheese. Maybe they're Gouda fans like myself. Who knows? <laughs> but if you can make them have a tastier meal, then you make the transition more viable. So the last thing you want people to do, and, and I, I see this a lot of time in, in implementation guides where they say, you know, you, you need to get buy-in from all your end users. You need to make sure that they're all advocates for security within the company and that they're not the only one with privileges being taken away and that everyone, like that sounds terrible to me. That just means you're 
that everyone's miserable. The, the, the notion that you're going to make people feel better by telling them that everyone else is going to be as miserable as them does not seem like a very appealing proposition in my mind. So instead, you know, how can you actually make their lives easier? Well, pose something along the lines of, you don't have to go to multiple different areas now to request access to infrastructure. You mm -hmm. don't have to worry about really long delayed turnaround times and bureaucratic approval processes relying on, I don't know, ServiceNow or other types of ticketing systems. Instead, we'll have something where it's just one place, go to it, all of the things that you need to do your job will be just listed in a library. You need access to it, just say so, type in a reason, conduct MFA, and boom, you're in, you're good. And when you present that idea to users and you're actually making their lives easier, centralizing the ways that you get access to things, removing the requirement that they have to worry about you know, accounts being provisioned in their name or managing credentials on their side or any of that, you just make it disappear. And then all they worry about is what do they need to do to do their jobs and what is the shortest path to it? Well, you, you're talking about how to do some of the, the sales and marketing within the organization, if you will, to uh, to get everyone on board with this idea. It, uh, so are you underscoring the point that every group needs to have buy-in? Going back to your nine, Pam, uh, implemented within this organization example, did all nine groups need to buy in before it was worth trying to implement the zero standing privilege model? At the end of the day, no, you can do it piece by piece. But from an organizational perspective, you do want to achieve that. You want to make it easier for people to migrate over time. So you just have one place to look. So total visibility is another big concern around these types of organizations. And if you have a world where it's not a unified platform, then people are going to find ways around it. People are going to find ways to pick like one system versus another. So you want to try and like take away all of the old ways to do things and have just one path uh, and enforce that. But that's something that you can get to over time. You don't have to necessarily do it up front. It does make everything a lot easier, a lot less painful, and a lot more efficient. So much of security practices seem to be, if, if we want to stretch the food metaphor a little bit, it's about <laughs> eating your vegetables, right? It's good for you, but you're not going to enjoy it. And that's how it's often presented to the end user is you got to eat your security vegetables. <laughs> and I think, you know, as, as a parent, um, I am well aware that you got to sell vegetables a little bit, right? You got to dress them up. You got to make them more enjoyable to consume. And that's kind of what you're talking about is, well, yeah, we are improving your security posture, but you don't really know that. You're just getting a, a delicious meal at the end of it, that just happens to improve your security, but also your user experience. And that, I think that's, if you're going to move people's cheese, give them better cheese or, or better yet, give them dessert. You know, that's, yeah. well, I'm just sticking with the food metaphor here. I don't know why. Maybe I, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's maybe, maybe it's breakfast. It's just keeping us a little hungry. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll provide another metaphor. It's just one that comes up every once in a while. We, we have a design principle at StrongDM called Be the Wand. And the principle, the, the notion behind it is we don't want to be a product like Facebook or any other type of consumer product where you want to have, where they're trying to get your eyeballs engaged as many minutes of the day as possible. Mm. We want to be invisible, but indispensable. So if you are trying to accomplish something, 
and you know that you can pull out that strong DM wand with a quick flip of your wrist, you can do something magical, and then you put it away. You don't have to worry about it again because you know you can turn to it when you need it, but you don't have to use it all the time. I mean, just imagine, I don't know, if, if we're watching Harry Potter, the, the scenes would have a lot less uh, excitement if you know, when Harry's about to cast a spell, pulls out his wand, and first he's got to configure it and uh, pick, okay, well, what, what length of wand do I want? Do I got to get the 12-inch the or the 6-inch? Okay, and then I got to make sure I, I have the right wrapper on it. It's got the handle, and then uh, maybe I have to color it or, or, or turn it. Like, and you spend 30 minutes configuring the wand. For it. Like, nobody wants to do that. There should just be the right way to do it, an opinionated approach that is ideal. And yeah, you want to be flexible. You want to make sure you can accommodate for the unique snowflakes that all have their own kind of twist on what they need to do to actually you know, run their infrastructure and what their infrastructure looks like. But at the end of the day, you just want to have something that's simple, easy to use, uh, and it feels invisible. It feels like you're you're just trying to accomplish your goal and it's even easier than it was before. All right, Sebastian. So I think we've got a better sense of how to deal with the human side of things. It's never going to be easy, especially for people in IT who are really intense and focused and have strong opinions about things. But uh, you've given us uh, an idea of how to conquer some of this stuff. So let, let's get down into some implementation details. Uh, what, what would the first steps be in writing a zero standing privilege uh, policy? Do, do we have to focus on perfectly preparing our infrastructure to be able to handle this new paradigm? Or, or I mean, you kind of gave us a hint that there are some ways to transition in, but, uh, but, but give us some clues here. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there, are, there are a couple ways, I mean, there are many ways to do this. There's ways that I would recommend more than others. I would start by restating the problem here. And it's not even necessarily, the, the problem is not trying to think about what is the perfect zero standing permissions policy, but it's even more basic than that. It's, it's what do people actually need to do to do their jobs? And how do I figure that out? And there's two aspects of it. It's, it's both the human aspect, the, the you know, account side of things. What does an individual with a certain set of responsibilities actually need to do their job? And how can I understand what that is based on historical patterns? And then there's the infrastructure side, which is, okay, well, what pieces of infrastructure actually fall into those categories that match against that user? And how can I identify them both, again, on a historical basis, as well as on a going forward basis when you're constantly tearing down and building up new infrastructure? Uh, both of these sides are very difficult. And the historical aspect, if that's your focus, uh, is probably the most daunting challenge that most organizations face. Well, it's that. And then it's also translating all of those semantics into the actual grant, probably very granular security policy itself. So you're expressing to the resource what it is that this person is, uh, is, is needing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and one thing that we've discovered over time is that this is actually a pretty consistent problem across organizations. And one in which, I don't think there's been a great systematic answer to yet to crack this. And it's this notion of people have a very hard time understanding what infrastructure they actually have and what's important versus not important and what does each piece do uh, at a very basic level. You know, we oftentimes hear this request like, I want to know, 
want to be able to see very easily who's accessed my most sensitive infrastructure and what did they do to it. That's a very common question we get. This is post-implementation, but just using the question to demonstrate a challenge that exists even pre-implementation. And the natural follow-up to that is, okay, well, what is your most sensitive infrastructure? How, how do you know what that is? And answers always generally, and this is a conversation you're having with a CISO or maybe the, the head of DevOps. And like, well, I'm the head of DevOps. I, I know what the most sensitive infrastructure is. All right, well, does anyone else know? How, how do you identify it? If you are labeling it or tagging it, what is the process when something new comes through? Is there some type of onboarding and uh, ingestion model? What if something changes over time? and something become sensitive? And there are you know, quantitative ways to evaluate this sometimes. Uh, there are tools that detect like PII in databases, and then you can use that information to label sensitive infrastructure. But that is like a very one-off case. And most people have other sensitive infrastructure, which is like, well, this is the code that goes to production. Okay. And what if it's not explicitly the code that goes to production, but it's a piece of infrastructure that then piece of production uses to build on and then something in production? Is that also considered sensitive? So it's a very complex question that you're actually posing to someone where they really just have like an intuitive answer. Mm. And that ends up being like the daunting challenge is this like, well, how am I even supposed to figure this out? There are two ways you can approach it. You can do an inventory up front, which honestly we recommend taking a stab at. But at the end of the day, we find that the best way to really discover this is organically. So we have this concept that we are, are pursuing. Uh, it's, it's the way in which we implement it in the product today versus how we want it to look uh, several months from now is is going to be definitely different, but it's this notion of don't try to guess. Let policy write itself based on what people actually end up needing to do to do their jobs. So essentially, you can create this world where you essentially start with zero standing privileges. Don't even try to write the policy. Start with no policy, no privilege. And then let the policies develop themselves based on what people request access to over time. I always like this notion, having, I don't know if any of you are interested in the history of uh, medieval town construction and, and how they develop over time, but you know, companies in, or countries like Belgium have like great historical medieval towns and the way they're constructed is based off of like need paths and uh, kind of like localized human uh, demands and what they need to actually you know, live on a day-to-day -day basis. Essentially, the towns organically develop based on those clusters of needs and the paths that get drawn between them. And so essentially, you can take the same approach where you have, you start, you, you introduce a new tool, you introduce pieces of infrastructure, uh, but the same way of accessing it that people always have. So people are just going to try to do their jobs on a day-to-day -day basis like they always have. And then you use those patterns to just create a policy based on those behaviors over time. Well, Sebastian, that sounds like what in networking, uh, how micro-segmentation works. When you stand up a micro-segmentation solution, you don't try to figure out what all ports everything that, uh, every server that's talking to another server, every host talking to another host is gonna need and then write the policy and then press go. You let the micro-segmentation solution observe the all the communications between the different hosts and then you use that as your baseline because now you've observed what was actually needed and uh, you've now you've got your baseline to write your security policy and you can tweak from there. 
you don't start from nothing and hope to get it right the first time. You you watch what's on the wire on the assumption that there's too much granularity to be able to figure this out from the get-go. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I love that analogy. And your end goal here is, again, still not to have the perfect policy, but to have something that covers 80% of the cases. And then everything else you allow to, this is when you start incorporating principles of just-in-time access, have workflows that'll just make it as easy as possible for that remaining 20% to be filled out over time. So you have the need, you have that core 80% uh, that gets determined by what people actually need to do their jobs and are actually attempting to do. And then the remainder, you allow for this kind of like injection of human judgment into the policy itself. So it's not fully computational, but there's just an ele- human element that you're incorporating into it. And okay, well, I've established this is my policy based on my behaviors, but I need something out of the ordinary. Okay, well, the way to do that is just to make sure you have it as seamless as a workflow impossible in place so that you can still have a level of friction, which means that not anybody can access anything, but it's also still pretty seamless and rapid for someone to just get to it and it doesn't impede their operational efficiency. And that's by having a workflow that is like predefined and connects to the resource owner and things them on Slack or on their phone and says, hey, you know, Ned really wants to have access to this extra sandbox, even though it's not part of his standard regime. Uh, but he's working with Ethan on a side project. Great. Let's just do that real quickly. Uh, and you just allow them to bridge the gap uh, as seamlessly as possible. And yeah, you need to have that workflow in place anyway, because you may have what seems like a perfect set of policies to begin with, but exception, exceptions come up. People get sick and aren't able to you know, do their job in that day, but you need to get something done. Oh, well, you know, normally Ethan would perform this task, but today... He's not available and I need to do it. I don't have privileges, but I can ask you, Sebastian, hey, can you elevate my privileges for the next four hours so I can accomplish this while Ethan's away? And then it just, you know, fades out when, when it's done. But so having that workflow in place is going to be required regardless. And, and now we have a way to address that 20%. Do you also envision um, some sort of process to capture those exceptions and make them policy if it is going to be an ongoing thing as opposed to like these random one-offs? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's a great point to bring up. And again, I would turn back to integrations with tools that customers are already using to really handle these types of change management. Uh, And that's things like being able to integrate with Jira or other change management tools and create paper trails for when exceptions occur. So that you can then look back and like identify the patterns. Like, all right, well, we see that the people that occupy this role in this team, uh, you know, once a month need access to this resource. Suggest a change to the policy or suggest a new policy. Get someone to validate it and attach a business logic to it, and then you can just add it to the system. So having like that dynamic suggestions of how can we change over time, based on integrations with change management systems and the paper trails you can generate on that dynamically. Uh, Combines the best of both worlds. You know, you're still giving that easy access, but then you're creating also an auditable paper trail that you can reference, uh, and then create new dynamic policies down the road. Off. Okay, gotcha. Now you you've described this as being um, a, a kind of a centralized solution. Strong DM ends up in, in the middle of all of these transactions. So does that also mean I've got one human or one group that's managing the Strong DM solution? So there's this one person or specialist that is focused on building out policies and getting them deployed and all of that. 
I would say definitely not. Same as I don't think it's possible for any one individual in an organization of size to be able to understand how to write the numerous, perfect, uh, you know, well-crafted James Michener-esque policies and, and writing and beautiful prose to express all the work that people need to do. I, I just don't see that as feasible or possible. Uh, so in the same vein, you you need to have pe- multiple people actually running the administration. The centralization is is the the tool itself. So the administration of that tool should still be decentralized to a degree. And you can have oversight and you can build it in a way, build that type of oversight in a way that reflects a company's security objectives. So you can have various levels of powers within the product itself. But again, that's something you want to keep fairly simple, I think. And instead, just make sure you are following the changes itself. One other interesting implementation I've seen a customer do actually is they they actually don't even rely on writing the policies within StrongDM themselves. So StrongDM, again, we want to give you that opinionated, magical, fairly straightforward way to do it while still being flexible. Uh, instead, what they do, and it's just very easy to plug what their solution into StrongDM and have it kind of take over the policy writing engine in StrongDM. And essentially, they write all their policies in GitHub. And then those just get expressed into StrongDM. So that way, they can, you can have the mm-hmm. same kind of like merge and revision policies as you would for any type of code, but on your policies themselves, allow those policies to be decentralized. And essentially, you're kind of delegating a bit of that administration outside of StrongDM itself, while still allowing StrongDM to handle most challenging parts, you know, the session management, the credential injection, uh, all the login auditing, uh, but allowing the policies to be written in kind of the native language of the administrators of that company. So it really kind of is a simple way to also be flexible and magical. Interesting. Yeah. So many products, uh, security products and other products that I say out there that have a policy language require you to learn a DSL, a domain-specific language. And, you know, there's a ton of them out there. If you're going to use OPA, we've had some folks yep. some, some steer on the show before talking about OPA. And then you got you to learn Rego if you want to use OPA, um, you know, and other security tools. Maybe they use YAML, but it's like they have their own verbs and everything in YAML. Um, so in the, with that in mind, are, are you saying that if I am if I'm using strong DM, I don't need to learn a DSL because that sounds nice. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, the goal of strong DM is to not broaden your vocabulary. That is not what we want to do. We want to <laughs> stick with some common verbs and nouns and adjectives, and just have that be the basic building blocks that can be reorganized, rearranged, uh, and represented in whatever the common languages you have. We have a Terraform provider that's already built up. Uh, we have four SDKs, uh, and we also integrate directly with a lot of these types of other sources of information via those APIs. So it really does make it pretty easy to just rely on like a consistent set of nouns. And as long as you have your language that's preferred, then you can just express it using that common vocabulary that you overlap with. Uh, but you, I, I do not want you to be learning another language with StrongDM that is it is not something that I, I care to put on people's plates. If, if I'm implementing zero standing privilege, uh, I want to turn to the user perspective, uh, Sebastian. It feels like this can't possibly be seamless. As the end user, there's got to be some disruption to my life. This is not going to be smooth sailing. So, so I guess tell me I'm wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Why am I wrong, Sebastian? <laughs> well, it really comes down to intent. You know, 
what are you trying to achieve at any given point in the access workflow? You can intentionally make it difficult, but not really any more so than you would want to do today. You know, typing in a password to log into my SSO can be seen as a form of friction. Uh, even you know, making sure that my fingers aren't dirty with uh, cream cheese from my breakfast so that I can actually do a biometric authentication, that could be work. Uh, there's there's always some element of friction that you want to have in a, in a situation. The goal with ZSP, though, is to make it not frictionless, but appropriate friction. I still have yet to find a good word for that, actually. I, or even like more friction. I keep saying frictionful, which sounds like a ridiculous word. In fact, I'm positive <laughs> it's not a word, but my brain keeps reaching for it. So whatever that is, it, it's the appropriate and consistent level. So what you don't want to do is, well, I authenticated to my work work desk, uh, and I'm you know, authenticated to StrongDM, and I need to access this resource. Previously, I you had to jump through a bunch of hoops. I had to go check out some credentials, download them, you know, take the key, and then use it to get into whatever the server is. As long as you're not that difficult, then it's a win. And you always want to have at least like some friction, whether it's Tell me why you want to access this resource today or right now. And just automate away the rest. You know, Automate away the vice posture. Automate away the, the, way the, the behavioral aspects of things, uh, which also can be a part of like the conditional, conditional authorization here. But you just want to make sure that what the end users actually experience is no difficult, uh, no, sorry, no more difficult. That's consistent with the way they've always accessed things. Uh, and that's really your goal. And then in, there are some cases where you can make it even easier for them. So we, as long as it's intentional where you're placing the friction and that it's consistent with or less, I would say th those are the goals. So there are ways to do it in which you can make their lives harder. But at the end of the day, giving them tools to make their lives a little easier uh, is really the objective. Okay, fair enough. All right, Sebastian. So uh, again, fair enough. I think that's that's fine. I was wrong, uh, and because you can make it seamless as long as it's, it's it's an appropriate level of seamlessness. People that have heard this conversation and they want to know more about Strong DM, where would you send them, Sebastian? I would definitely send them to strongdm.com/slash/packetpushers. Okay, strongdm.com slash packet pushers. And also, if you've heard this, and we, we've mentioned that there's been some other shows we've done with Strong DM, including the topic of zero standing privilege, episode 172. If you go back in time to episode 172, you can hear the first part of this conversation we had on zero standing privilege. And Strong DM is also on Twitter at Strong DM, and you can find them on the other places. You know, use the search engine thing, and you can find Strong DM. Very easily. Our thanks to Strong DM for sponsoring Day Two Cloud and feeding our hungry families. Now, if you out there listening, if you ring up Strong DM to find out more, would you please let them know that you heard about them on Day Two Cloud, part of the Packet Pushers Podcast Network? Or again, use the landing page at strongdm.com/slash Packet Pushers. And virtual high fives to you for tuning in. You are a most excellent human. If you have suggestions for future shows, vendors you'd like us to have on, topics you want us to discuss, ask us anything. Ned and I monitor our phones every second of the day, waiting for you to tweet to us at Day2CloudShow. And, and if you don't do Twitter, because we get that, you can fill out the request form on Day2Cloud.io. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. 